Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And today, we're moving on from Stan the Man and Jack the King to talk Thor from Roy the Boy. Excelsior. I, I heard that recently, um, I think from someone from Comic Book Herald, but they were just, uh, they were talking about Stan the Man and Roy the Boy, and I not only found that really memorable, it turns out there's a lot of truth to it, as we will shortly discuss. Ooh, ooh, I know very little about um, Roy the Boy, uh, aka Roy Thomas. I, I've probably read some comics by him, but because the the early Bronze Age most of the Bronze Age is a is a big uh, empty spot for me in my reading history. I probably have missed most of his stuff. I, well, I know that's true because we've read a Roy Thomas comic in this very podcast. Oh yes, right. We he did, did Pre Scroll War. He did. That's why. That's why the name was familiar within yeah. the books that we've done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have done a, and you know, the, this had a lot of the same flaws as Pre Scroll War when it comes to reading it today. Yeah. Yeah, it really um, does. Which isn't to say it wasn't kind of fun. No, I, I enjoyed it. So I, I think, think one thing that helped these co- this comic today, which we'll talk about, is that uh, we didn't read Eternals comics per se. We read an arc of Thor from the 70s. Yeah, I, and I guess technically it's the first half of the arc. Right, and we're going to keep uh, keep reading it. But so already when we're talking about this story, it's like in the context of another superhero, the Eternals are more like a supporting cast and antagonists and allies. And what's really fun is we're technically entering in the middle of another story that's the middle of another story. It's that good, classic comic book, never-ending soap opera stuff. Yeah, which and like the special Bronze Age flavor to it, which I, which I think we've never really, after decompression started in the early 2000s, we've never gone back to like good Bronze Age soaps. No, for better or for worse. For better and for worse, because... Every time Chris Claremont does, like, a new X-Men issue, I'm like, this is cool and whatever, but, like, yeah, I can't do this all the time. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about Roy Thomas? Fill, fill in some of my, my missing knowledge. Right, right. So, um, last time we talked about uh, Jack Kirby's The Eternals, um, which ended in 78. It started in, what, 76? Yes, um, and the Eternals ended in the first half of that year, and um, this Thor arc starts later in 78. So, like, if you're a reader, this is, like, months later. You haven't spent years wondering where the Eternals went. Yeah, which is which is kind of nice. They probably realized, oh, we probably should wrap up some of this stuff. It's uh, pretty big. Yeah, because well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there was a couple of story cliffhangers that uh, I wasn't uh, sad to return to, actually. Oh. But so the vibe with Roy Thomas, which I think is interesting is um, Roy Thomas gets hired pretty early in ter- um, in the history of Marvel Comics. But as, you know, Marvel heads know, uh, Marvel was called Atlas Comics in the 50s and kind of arose from Timely Comics in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And um, Jack Kirby, who created the Eternals, was a big part of Timely Comics. Um, but St- and I think Stan Lee did some freelance work for Atlas, but Stan Lee comes on right away in Marvel. He writes the first Marvel comic. Okay. And, and we've talked about Stan Lee stuff, and Stan Lee, like, uh, has all his flaws, and he doesn't trust his artists, and he's kind of a no. control freak, and then sometimes he, uh, lets go of everything and eschews all responsibility. <laughs> Roy Thomas, the impression I get from reading Marvel The Untold Story and from other history stuff is Roy Thomas kind of starts in the office as Stan Lee's, like, intern and gopher. Um, okay. But he re- he really quickly gets hired as, and he's the first consistent non-Stan Lee writer at Marvel. There's been a bunch of other people who have gotten work for hire, but Roy Thomas is, like, you're an employee of the company. Oh, did he get health benefits? I mean, it was, I, I don't know about what benefits look like in the, in the <laughs> what are we talking about, the early 60s. We can hope. It's post-New Deal. My grad school history professors would be so mad at me (laughs) but another thing to note is stan lee when he started at marvel um in the 60s is like a really young guy and he's like really obnoxious he's just he has like that special obnoxiousness that only comes with youth Mm. Mm -hmm. the my favorite little image is that uh stan lee used to like to torment everybody in the marvel offices by just like playing the flute at work oh my god i know someone just like him yeah i think everybody knows someone just like him but like you kind of get the vibe from old man stan lee that he was the fucking worst when he was in his 20s and yeah that seems to be the case 
Yeah, very sprite-like. Yeah, but like Mad Men sprite-like, which I feel like is a bad vibe. Yeah, that's a bad vibe. Roy Thomas is like 25 years old when he's hired on full-time at Marvel. So he's like super young. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that's how the sixties. Yeah, I just like uh, twenty five feels super young to be the only other employee at this uh, publishing company. Where and when he got hired, of that was Marvel quite big. Like, had it gotten big, or was it still like on the way up? I mean, Marvel got bigger and bigger from the sixties to the nineties to uh, today. I guess. I mean, now mm-hmm. you know it's a subsidiary of the Disney Empire. Yeah, it's hard to really judge how big things are, considering most of them are owned by other things, which are owned by other things. I I guess the the way I define it is that the n- early '90s, uh, when Marvel gets bought uh, by Pearl Mutter, and uh, that's in the mid '90s, but um, mm-hmm. around then it was like the first time when if you worked at Marvel, there was potentially you didn't know every other employee at Marvel. Throughout the '60s and '70s, I feel like there was less than 50 people working for Marvel as a company. Ah, okay. You know, not counting, I'm sure there's, like, uh, publishers and there's people driving trucks and everything. I don't mean to discount yeah, yeah, their yeah. work. Like, in the offices. Yeah, like, um, there's that Marvel record that they put out in the 60s, <laughs> and they sent to the Mary Marvel Marching Society, and you can hear Stan Lee, <laughs> like, interview everybody at Marvel, and they all hate him, and Jack Kirby can't wait to get out and go smoke a cigarette. Oof. Um, but you can, like, hear this recording, and that is, you know, everybody create doing creative work for Marvel on a record being interviewed in a couple of tracks. That's wild. Yeah, and I just, and um, in the 70s, they're, like, the Mar- most of the Marvel staff is, like, go into the Playboy Mansion to party and shit. <laughs> um, and it's still, like, a small company. Like, you can see a picture of, like, the Marvel um, Halloween party in the late 70s where they dressed up like the uh, Marvel characters, which is cute as heck. Um, I can't and like, get over just how 70s all of these statements are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone should read Marvel The Untold Story. It rules. But you, there's like a group picture of them at the party, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's like 20-ish people, 25 people. Mm-hmm. But Roy Thomas, his I think his signature Marvel comic is uh, Conan the Barbarian, which starts in 1970. Mm, with Barry Windsor Smith? Uh, yeah, I, Barry Windsor Smith on part of it. I think there's a – because John Boucher – yeah, right – checking my notes the next sentence john buscema is um the art is roy thomas's artist on the early conan issues ah okay and hold that thought because john buscema also uh wrote drew these comics mm-hmm. but another thing to note about where we are in the timeline of marvel is that in 1972 stan lee uh moved up to from editor-in-chief to publisher and Roy Thomas becomes the second Marvel editor-in-chief ever. Um, and his first couple of moves, I think, are, like, uh, really show you, like, how he thinks of Marvel as a company. Because they're kind of mm-hmm. weird at first. Like, uh, he he boosts the Defenders early on, which is as, like, the team that's not a team. Just, like, a bunch of superheroes running into each other. And um, What If was under the Thomas reign. Uh, they launched a World War II set, the Invaders comic, because, like, that's what he was reading when he was a teenager. <laughs> right? Like, it's yeah. like a—I think that's kind of cyclical, that whoever is in charge wants to do whatever was cool when they were a kid. Yeah. And when Roy Thomas was a kid, he was reading Timely Comics by Jack Kirby. Fair point. He also is into Doctor Strange, but Doctor Strange never sold very well, but he was like, this is cool, druggy college kids read this. Hey, we need more weird books that are just barely selling enough. Yeah, he was super into that. Um, but I think the other signature Roy Thomas move um, in terms of being editor-in-chief is he starts getting, like, licensed mar- stuff to Marvel. So he gets the Co- Code of the Barbarian, which obviously uh, was not uh, was created by uh, uh, Howard. What's mm-hmm. Howard's first name here? Uh, Save I me. I thought it was R, just R. Howard. Uh yeah, I feel like I know his name, but this is embarrassing. My brain is a sieve. I don't know. There are there are a lot of, you know, weird, weird names. A lot of similar names. It's Robert Howard. Robert S. Howard. Aha! It did start with an R. Yeah, and also, um, Roy Thomas gets the 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 Star Wars comics in um in the seventies. And like, do people get how big a deal the Star Wars comics were in the seventies? I don't know, and. I think the other question is, did he know that they were going to be big? Kind of like how Priest... this Well, this must have been negotiated after the movie came out, so people knew how big Star Wars was. No, this was back when they were like toy deals and stuff. 
the first uh, this was the first time I think that it had ever happened with toy deals and stuff. The first issue of the Star Wars comic came out like a month before the movie released. Oh, wow. Right. So a, a bunch of if you're a comic kid and you pick that up, you're like, holy shit. And this is going to be a movie in a couple weeks. That's wild. Yeah, that's a huge get. But also like um, my favorite fact to kind of illustrate how crazy those comics are is um there is a flashback at one point where you see darth vader and anakin skywalker together because empire strikes back isn't out yet (laughs) so those guys are still separate in the story right how did they explain that away later they didn't they just ignored that that flashback had ever occurred that's wild yeah but so like but they're doing crazy free reign stuff like the star wars comics are in the comics world almost as big a deal as the star wars movies are in the movie world Mm mm-hmm yeah, and and they're selling like crazy numbers. Um, they're bringing in non comics readers, and that's so. I I'm sure Roy Thomas now, or you know, uh, Roy Thomas fans now would say, oh yeah, you know, he was a prophet and knew that this was going to be a big thing. But mm. he, he took it. But it's, I think it's cooler. He took a gamble, and um, and it really paid off. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be right, right. Like Roy Thomas uh, as editor in chief, I think. I think the reign of each Marvel editor in chief is a really interesting history to go through, and like how mm-hmm. everyone responded, you know, past the baton throughout the decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm into that. If you're listening to this podcast, you're also probably into that. Probably one one day, maybe we'll convince Tom Brevort to come on and just regale us about Marvel EIC history. Yeah, and he, you know, he'd do it. I think Tom Brevort would appear on anything. I hope so. But uh, we also got to talk about uh, John Buscema, the artist of the Thor comics we are talking about today. Oh, yeah. Well, at least the beginnings of them. Right, right. Then he starts uh, swapping like a modern comic. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that John Buscema is probably the most legendary member of the original Timely Bullpen in the 40s. Okay. It's either him or Gene Colan, who's also a legendary Marvel artist. Yeah, they're they're both pretty big names for those early, early times. Yeah, and like per, I'd give the edge to Buscema personally, but like, uh, you know, to each their own. Um, Buscema came back to Marvel Town in 1966, and he was doing layouts for Jack the King Kirby. Um, he had been doing like romance comics and western comics and whatnot in the 50s, and so back in the 60s, Buscema said um, in interviews later that um, he was like trying to get back into the superhero mindset. So he was like really following Jack Kirby in terms of like layouts and pacing and how to set up a story. Not a bad person to to follow. Right, absolutely. We just read a bunch of Jack Kirby comics, and they're drawn so perfectly. Um, So I think Buscema's most famous superhero work was him and Stan Lee doing the first Silver Surfer solo series in 1968. Okay. Um, And when Kirby leaves Marvel for the first time in 1970, uh, Buscema completes his weird single white female thing and takes over Kirby's life and takes all of Kirby's (laughs) titles that he suddenly dropped out of. (laughs) Um, which makes sense because I think that like, uh, when I say Buscema's art is very house style, I I don't mean it derisively. Like he's not very creative. It's like defining the house style. Yes. That's actually a really good way of putting it. And like, uh, when I say house style, I mean the versions of the characters that would appear on like a lunchbox. Yeah, like if you were to open up a Marvel comic, you and you want were looking for like what are the version of the characters that you want to see. That's probably what it is, and that was, I think, more important in this era than it has been lately. Even though there still are DC and Marvel house styles, where you look at something and you're like, yeah, that that looks like what Marvel wants a book to look like. Well, it's like uh, go walk down the Office Max aisle and Back to School Month. <laughs> um, and like look at and like uh, the ver- that version of Rocket Raccoon that you're gonna see on like the folders. That's how style mm. right now. Yeah, that's how I define it. Um, and so, and I think Buscema was like cre- was creating that I kind of iconography, taking that baton from Kirby as mm. marketing is becoming more important. Um, anyway, um, and the last thing to mention about Buscema is as uh, Eternals is closing out, um, boom, Buscema is just like picking up the the story from Kirby, um, making him pretty similar in the most flattering of ways. That is very interesting. <laughs> how. It, it really is that, that kind of continuation, passing it on, and you can kind of feel it in the art. And I think 
we'll get into it. I think the the art did a little did a better job of capturing what made the original Eternals such an interesting project as opposed to the writing. Yeah, uh, I told you a lot about Roy Thomas's like impact on Marvel history, but we I didn't really get into the quality of his writing, the qualities of his writing. Yeah, it's probably very varied. Which I would say most writers are fairly varied. Yeah, sir. I mean, certainly, but yeah, Roy Thomas tends to uh, to overexplain, just like Stan Lee before him. It's just it's so funny because I feel like I guess the moral of my story today is that uh, Roy Thomas and John Buscema really are like a next generation of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. <laughs> Hopefully, not as contentious between the two. Uh, that I don't know, although they worked together multiple times over a long period of time. I imagine they had something of a working rapport, but then again, so did Lee and Kirby, and they did not. Yeah, I guess maybe one day we'll find out. Or never. Yeah, I I think as time passes, it's going to become history. Um, mm. But so that, yeah, that's a lot to do with the context and background and the history of these creators. But do you want to take a commercial break, and when we get back, we'll actually talk about what happens in these comics? Sure. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3Cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no bad Dandadio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us and welcome back uh over the break i was telling jaina about some of the pages that i have open i've got my copy of thor in the eternal saga here and we we're complaining about the lack and s- the sad sad lack of big goofy hats and sad thor beards yeah i gotta have my goofy hats i remember um an interview with tom hiddleston after the first Thor movie, where uh, he was like, yeah, it was really easy to get into that headspace because I was wearing this big giant metal thing on my head. It was cooking my brain. So I just like leaned into the hat madness. <laughs> and so I always figure uh, that's what that's how everyone feels in Thor all the time is just like they're cooking their heads in these big ovens that they're wearing. And just like that's why they're all yelling and punching each other all the time. This is why the first Thor movie is my favorite of them. That's a hot take, but I kind of agree. I love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it <laughs> captures almost every era of Thor perfectly. Maybe not the current one. You know, not the current one. I, I really love this take. I, I, I'm really partial. I, a lot of people are like, everyone knows that the first Thor was a bad movie, and I think that's crazy. I love the first Thor movie. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're wrong. It does fall apart in the third act a little. But that feels like because it's a Kenneth Branagh movie and he wants four hours of movie and then it gets cut down to one and a half. Um, I mean, it's not like Marvel movies ever figured out how to have a third act. I'm looking at my definitive every MCU movie ranked ever ranking and Thor is currently at 13 of 25. So that's pretty solidly good in the middle. Solidly in the middle. Mm hmm. So we should probably talk about this Thor instead from God, almost 50 years ago. God, I, I love 42. Thor in every two. 42 years ago, I think. It's really hard to make me not like Thor. The only Thor comics that I find to be unreadable, maybe ever, are the ones that Jack Kirby wrote. Ooh, interesting. He just, like, he just does the same Kirby nonsense over and over and over again with, like, and then there was an alien and Thor punched it, and then there was a mad scientist. <laughs> just, like, cycling through. Um, oh, boy. But this is pretty fun, and Roy Thomas is, like, committed to the bit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should probably actually do the whole credits because there are quite a number of them in this first half and the second half it pretty evens out but we're not there yet so these issues which we read which was annual number seven and thor number 283 through 291 um, was written by roy thomas um, and it was illustrated by walter simonson who did the annual Don- john buscema who did 283 to 285 keith pollard who did 286 through 289 and 291 and Arvel Jones who did 290 they were inked by Ernie Chan who did annual number 7 and Chick Stone who did all the other issues um the coloring 
This is this one's gonna be fun. Uh, Glynis Ween did annual number seven, number two hundred and eighty-four, two hundred and eighty-six, two hundred and eighty-eight, and two hundred and ninety-one. George Russos did two hundred and eighty-three and two hundred and eighty-five. Mary Severin did two hundred and eighty-seven. Bob Sharon did two hundred and eighty-nine, and Carl Gafford did two hundred and ninety. Um, and the letterers were Tom Orzachowski, who did annual number seven and number 284, and Joe Rosen, who did 283 through 291. He and Tom co-lettered 284. Okay, now I want you to go back and start from the beginning, but do it all in one breath. <laughs> no, I'm not practicing for Purim. I'm good. <laughs> Man, I used to be the shofar blower at my Purim, at my, uh, at my Yomki Purim uh, growing Ooh. up. Ooh, you know, I meant the... The ten sons of uh, Haman. You gotta oh, do yeah, them all yeah. in one breath. You gotta do them all in one breath. Oh God! Yet, Shofar, you gotta have strong lungs. I do not oh, my have God. strong I have, lungs. I have quit smoking so many times between then and now that uh, I definitely couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> that was. Those were all the credits. There was a lot of churn. <laughs> there was. I mean, uh, it, it seems to me this is right after. Uh, Kirby's coming back and Roy Thomas is like taking the reins of management around this time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like he's running. You can feel the scramble as they're, they're passing from generation to generation. Yeah. And it's also, I wonder how much is scramble and how much is there? Like, we don't want to overwork the artists like we did Jack. We don't want them leaving after six months. Yeah. I, uh, I hope that was the case, but anyway, so um, the first, the Thor annual was cool. It was fine. I liked hanging out with Thor. And did um, I didn't look it up. But how early in Walt Simonson's career was this? I think this was one of the early, early stuff. I don't think because he hadn't taken over um, anything on Thor. This might have been like his debut trial on the title. Uh, what do Let's you think? See. Can you like see the Simonson style there yet? Or does he still have a while to go? I think I can see it. A little bit. He definitely, it definitely isn't. There are a few panels, I think, uh, when Thor's swinging his hammer at, oh, who was it? Who was he swinging it at? I don't remember. I'll, I'll have to turn to the page. Um, but that, Some you know, that head. is that there's that iconic Thor swing that, that Simonson does. Um, it's on the cover of a bunch of the trades. The, the one where he's like the arc of movement and wind is flying off of Mjolnir as he yeah. strikes it out. Yeah. Let's see. I, I do like it. It's like another way that superhero comics are like wrestling is that uh, they have like a signature pose <laughs> mm-hmm. that they can strike up and like a kind of like, you know, Spider-Man leaping and curled up and shooting a web. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm looking up the the arts. Um, I think he's. Yeah, this looks like it was one of his first major works at. Um, That's pretty at cool. Marvel. I mean, I feel like he, he's obviously a talented kid. Yeah, he did. He did some rampaging Hulk. He did some Conan before this. Right, right. Uh, but everything. This seems like this is around the time that he was starting. So, but he, so he was mostly a fill-in, or that's why they had him on the annual. Makes makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a good job. I really, I felt the grandiosity in the art, um, even as you know, some of the, what is it the the. The story is pretty uh, lackluster. I I will say this for Thomas's writing, like uh, the drifting from location to location. When Kirby was writing, jumping from location to location, it really just felt like people were like aimlessly wandering and trouble would find them. Yes, this feels like a coherent narrative from from place to place. It kind of feels like a Bond movie where, like, you're in a place, and then by the end of the scene, you find out that the next clue is, like, half a world away, so yeah, jet set over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but at least it, it's, like, driving, because I feel like Kirby will wrap up his stories, and then he'll be like, oh, well, I guess now he has to go to New York City and get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And what's also really interesting about this annual, it's set up for the Eternal stuff, but the Eternal stuff then doesn't kick off for another, you know, few months or whatever, because this is supposedly taking place in the middle of, or it was published, I think, in the middle of uh, the Ragnarok stuff or the false Ragnarok stuff or whatever it's called. I mean, there was a couple times that they did Ragnarok, but I guess the, the 70s one. And by setting this in the past and kind of having it be be the seed, it, it sets up the later stuff to come really well. Right. So I think setting it in the past is already a really cool decision. I love that 
Thor is immortal and how you can tell stories with that. Mm -hmm. And it gives a really nice explanation. Maybe not nice, but it gives an explanation for, well, why didn't Kirby deal with these other, you know, deities that he had created for the Marvel Universe? Yeah, um, this is going to be my sticking point throughout this, but I think that this does a terrible job and maybe is what sets up the Eternals for being so lousy for so long. Ooh, interesting, interesting. I mean, I guess Kirby set it up in a way that I already didn't like. Um, yeah. But like, I don't, You'll when we get the, a little later in it, that's when uh, I will point out my big, big issue. Yeah. Um, do we want to get into the racism? Oh, I mean... Um, we covered it a little bit when we were talking about Kirby, um, and it bothered me there then, I guess because I, I got over the initial shock, I like, uh, I kind of just passed over it now, but you're right. It's still yeah. not good. I think this, this issue in particular, like doubles down on all the worst parts of the ancient aliens thing and like just somehow makes it more egregious <laughs> while also having that, yeah, the coloring doesn't, not, not so great, not so great on the, uh quote-unquote savages yeah yeah i um i'm embarrassed now i really like i put my brain in genre mode where i wasn't uh <laughs> i where i was like critically thinking about um that as a story decision rather than like a historical moral choice mm. uh but now that you're putting it out i'm like oh <laughs> that was an important consideration as well yeah it's just a lot a lot of bad assumptions and choices they made that I think Thomas was was also just working in genre mode. He was just like, yeah, this is the genre. You've got your your primitive societies and all that. And it's like he didn't try to interrogate any of it. And that's yeah, a major weakness. That's a cool thing that happens when you interrogate stories over a while, though, because like uh, I'm very into the rings of power right now. Mm -hmm. And like uh, I think that's doing a great job at... Um, not, not uh, putting too fine a point on it and just, like, seamlessly and intentionally uh, making some of the icky Tolkien racism a little bit more digestible. Hmm. And I'm sure we'll feel that way when we get to the modern-day contemporary Eternals comics. Probably. Uh, hopefully Dramaden doesn't show up again, because he is dull. Oh my god, do I even remember Dramaden? Don't you don't remember Dramadin? I'm well for this. I don't have any notes about Dramadin this well, time because he's only he is the because uh, this is the past. This is kind of explaining how he got that stupid helmet on his head and changing the story too. Yeah, Basically, I, uh, yeah. Annual number eight is a bit of a retcon to a story that had ended less than a year ago. <laughs> well, and much I I I feel like because Roy Thomas was a fan before he was a creator. Um, that's the dream, right? Is to go back and fix this story that always bugged you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Ugh. Um, my, my first notes happen when, uh, when Thor starts having his like angsty fight with Odin. Oh yeah. He has a lot of those. He has a lot of angsty fights with Odin in these issues. Much like having an iconic pose. I feel like you need to have an iconic overwritten, uh, fight with Odin. That's like a Thor mainstay. Mm hmm. And like, yeah. It's a good one. Uh, it's like really angsty and overwrought, but I like that. Yeah, it's it's. Mm, I'm trying to think of the right the right word for why it works well. It's theatrical. It's yeah. like playing to the cheap seats. Yeah, and I think you can always you can get a lot out of you know fighting with Odin because Odin kind of always sucks. Yeah, right? yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the Marvel character, although he kind of sucks in most mythology, too. Yeah, I just turned the page. Of, are you about to talk about Gamena on the Gatherer? <laughs> no, I was first going to talk about the, uh, I just turned the page to, from the Simonson issue to the John Buscema drawn issue, and, I, like, doing that made me go, wow, what a step down. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, Simonson's so much more, like, exciting and dynamic than uh, Bushema, who's, like, simple and economical. Yeah, I, I think also I turned to, like, the mountain pages, so there wasn't a lot of background. But you can you can feel him trying to be Kirby in these, and sometimes it works really well, and other times you're like, yeah, he's just recycling the Kirby stuff. Well, like, uh, I feel like uh, 
Simonson's drawing, like, like you can see wrinkles on Thor's cape in the Simonson, mm-hmm. and Bushemba, his cape is just kind of like a red blob behind him, and it's uh, it's very evocative. Mm. Iconic. It's very, very pose-heavy, which yeah. they all are, but... Yeah, but, but Simonson's, like, he's more textured, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you, you saying about uh, The Gatherer? All right, so throughout this reading, a big part of my focus, I guess, for this is... I'm like a Marvel head and I like Marvel lore. So I'm trying to figure out where I'm trying to like solve the Eter- the Eternals and all their bullshit. Um, and as far as I can tell, Gamen on the Gatherer is um, just kind of I know, I know he showed up in our previous comics, but he's just like an asshole celestial brainiac. <laughs> right. That's like he just like wants to like put stuff in bottles. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he cares significantly less. He gets bored more easily. Right, and that's why I find him kind of a bummer, is that, like, uh, dispassioned Brainiac is, like, not what Brainiac needed. No, no, he didn't. The, all the Celestials, even though they've got names and they've kind of got sort of personalities, they really don't. Um, they do their one thing, and then they disappear for seven issues, and then maybe they'll come back, uh, which is fine, I, I guess. Yeah, I get what they're going for. They want the Celestials to be mysterious and unknowable. I, I don't think they I don't think Thomas does such a good job of kind of selling us on the Celestials as much as Kirby did. Although it's nice to find them to have them actually back in the in the spotlight. Yeah. And as antagonists and like you said, it's interesting to see just like in a pure who will beat who, how they stack up against the Asgardians. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess this is the first time that um we're really establishing because I can think of a couple other comics, which I might mention later that. um. Like, the Celestials are, for the most part, more powerful than gods. Mm-hmm. The Celestials are a step above gods, right? Yes. Like, Thor can't beat a Celestial in a one-on-one fight. No, not not even close. Yeah, and this is where the, I think that gets established. Mm. It, re- it really kind of sets the, uh, not the stage, but the, the stakes kind of shows the different levels of everyone. I'm given the side-eye, though. I'm... I'm not sure that this is a good idea, but whatever. Um, were you surprised that Margot and Dr. Damien came back? Yes. I thought, I honestly thought that the comic would totally forget about them, and then it does. It does forget about them pretty quickly, but I like touching base with them more than I thought I would. It just made it feel more like an ongoing story in a way yeah. that I feel like uh, current superhero comics are really quick to like uh, clear the board and establish their new status quo. Yeah. But I like talking about the previous issues. And it's nice to actually see the human characters kind of show up again after they got super sidelined. In I mean, then they get super sidelined again. <laughs> yeah, which, which sucks. And But I think that's uh, kind of indicative of the changing approach to, to this story. Um, we kind of go from, you know, we go from the, the human, not the human-centric, but humans being kind of the one of the focal characters uh and and the lenses through which we're seeing the story uh and now it's a thor story thor is the the lens through which we're seeing this so he doesn't care about margo and dr damien and all of their anti that's not the kind of story this is anymore um he's dealing with all the the big the big people flying around and Especially now, he's not trying to be Donald Blake, so he's not really hiding, you know, he's not being on Earth as much. Yeah, and that's always a, that's an important changing dynamic with Thor comics, and, like, I like it at any level. I like it when he's doing cosmic bullshit, I like it when he's, like, hanging out on a farm. Mm-hmm. Do you like it when, uh, when Ereshkigal shows up, the Queen of Darkness? I mean, I guess. I like it when he, uh, th- that one issue where he gives a gift to a nun that he's friends with, that issue's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That is fun. Um, yeah. You know who I, do, I actually really liked? Mm-hmm. Is, um, so Carcass shows up here, and I was like, oh boy, here comes Carcass. Immediately, Carcass is the protagonist of this story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And this continues to frustrate me that in the setup of, the, you got your Celestials, you got your Eternals, and you got your Deviants. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why the Deviants weren't always the protagonist. They're like cool, scrappy underdogs. They got a lot of weird personality, and they're very soulful. And, like, they're fighting against these two different status quos that are trying to put them down. It's just, like, I don't understand why we want to follow these, like, royal Eternals who are just oppressing these poor, wonderful uh, uh, deviants. And you've also got the internal conflict of, you know, you've got the the oppressive, you know, Toad who's being, 
know, he's he's ruling and he he's very authoritarian. Uh, and, and but then you've got Crow who so this actually gets to one of the really interesting things here is the personalities and like the focus of the of like the what and the why changes again and then it becomes very consistent versus the ever-changing nature of Kirby's Eternals. Well, and there's that, I don't want to, there, but there's that, like, slog that sometimes happens with old Marvel books where, like, they're just recycling a bunch of ideas repeatedly um, and, and just, like, changing the color. Just like it's like yeah. a palette swap mad scientist villain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because this just becomes a ongoing superhero book, which is kind of sad. It's why, like, the, the Deviants end up other than carcass they, they kind of become less complicated um while the eternals lean heavier into you know the less fun parts yeah um but like again i i thor is a well-established marvel protagonist that i like so i don't mind the the perspective swap to his superhero antics mm-hmm. um i do like a, just like a thor trope that i like is the the tease of somebody like seeming to lift the hammer but then it's like you know it's a fake out <laughs> i think <laughs> everyone likes that and i like that crow got it here because like obviously crow is worthy crow rules yeah crow's great even though here again I'm sad that they don't that Thomas isn't capitalizing on like basically Crow's final real appearance was, was which was him crying in the the ruined cities of ruins of Lemuria as it floods. Oh yeah. Such a great pan. I think that might be one of my favorite panels of the of the original. I just googled because I hate myself, I guess. Um who played the uh, Crow in the MCU cuz I was just like didn't expect to love Crow. Didn't expect him to be my boy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's going to get to the Eternals movie, and I got to feel like I'm going to be disappointed. You will be. He's played by Bill Skarsgård, apparently. You will be very disappointed, and it is sad. Oh, man. Yeah, Crow, Crow is like the hero of these Eternals comics. Yeah, even when he kind of stinks. But then you see Thena, and you're like, Thena stinks even more. Yeah, Thena's, but Thena's like a messy in this way that I kind of like reading. Yeah. I feel like Leah Williams writing Athena comic would be kind of fun. Oh, I would love that. I think, um, I think Thomas is, I don't know, his char- his characters just feel a lot more one-dimensional, which is weird considering Kirby's stuff is very swing-for-the-fences, big people. But I think, I mean, in, like, they have their thing, and that's what they do. They're, they're archetypes. And Thomas writes the archetypes pretty well. Women are pretty you know dismissed through most of it i think the only the only female character who gets any shake is um cersei shows up and she and thor actually have really decent like buddy chemistry yeah and like icarus is kind of uh dismissive of cersei but that's because everyone's dismissive of cersei which stinks because she's she's a lot of fun she has not done anything that would uh other than you know putting silly hats on things and turning I don't know, the Greeks to pigs or whatever. They keep referencing that. I'm guessing that's a big uh, myth. You know, a big, the... yeah, that, that is, uh, it's in the Odyssey, and that is just like where Cersei is from in the modern canon, I think. I'm not a classicist or anything. But okay. um, but like, yeah, Cersei is a witch. She shows up in the Odyssey. She turns Odysseus's uh, guys into pigs. Yeah. I, one, other, one other thing I've noticed, I think that this series follows a similar... I don't know why Thomas does it this way, but like we hit the same beats as the first series around the same place as we're reading. Yeah, I noticed that like uh, the building of the Unimine feels like it's happening in a similar place. And the ship getting attacked once they get to Olympia um, and it turns out it's a misunderstanding or, you know, someone being dragged into the Unimine. But then we have Thor fly off to yell at Odin and then, you know... Hero shows up. Is Hero um, supposed to be Gilgamesh, or is he supposed to be Samson, or is he supposed to be both? I don't know about Samson, but so I um I looked up um I I went to this issue and on the Marvel Wiki, which is the main resource for this, I guess um it says that Hero and Gilgamesh are the same dude. Okay, I thought th- I thought that's what it was. I think the implication is that he's also Samson because he talks about how he his hair got cut and that was what did him in and he's blind because that's what happens to Samson before he brings down 
the whatever it's called the building around him it makes sense yeah, big strong guys and um having the same person be multiple people in myth i think is part of the potential fun of the eternals mm-hmm. although that does bring us to you know the the eternal question of why the fuck are the eternals in the marvel universe if the greek gods and the norse gods and all of these others actually existed already right um and I think what really uh, illustrates that for me is that all the Olympia stuff, like Olympia, the eternal version of Olympia looks like nothing to me. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like, like these big boxy rooms with like complicated shit going on with, with like energy and circuitry or whatever. It's a lot of Kirby stuff. Yeah, but like so is Asgard, but Asgard is not a people. It's not a place. It's a people. Um, but, <laughs> but Asgard is a place and it feels like a place in the comics. Like when they're when Thor's hanging out with the uh, Eternals on Olympia, I'm I'm losing patience. But when the Celestials show up in Asgard, it's like riveting because you really care about if they ruin Asgard for the hundredth time. Yeah, or even when Thor is is having his big fight with the uh, with with the the other why am I blanking the other Asgardians because Odin's like nope you can't come back here he has to fight them and he breaks the Rainbow Bridge and it's it's very affecting it's very moving yeah well and um the plot twist which I you know spoilers for the comic we're discussing um where Odin kneels to Arishem oh yeah that got me. That really, like, uh, I didn't know that was coming, and that uh, I that really be I pulled at my heartstrings. Yeah, and as of right now, we don't know why he did that. We're still we're still waiting. Well, uh, when we get to the last part of the story, I have that's what I'm gonna. I mean, do you have more you want to say about any of the characters? Because I want to talk about the one before all. Um, I do want to. I guess I want wanted to talk a little bit more about just the Thor stuff. But do you want to yeah, do that yeah, before yeah. or after the one above all? No, let's talk Thor. Okay. Because, you know, this is a Thor comic, and I I just found it really interesting being able to have both the Eternals and Thor in the same comic have kind of the same amount of focus, because it really contrasts the two societies and ideas. The Eternals are unchanging they and that's their point they never they're not supposed to ever change that's what the deviants are for um and they live for a very very long time and they can't die uh whereas thor is actively immortal and all of the the norse gods but there is change in asgard even as there isn't which is i i really like having those two kind of in conflict in a way that Sadly, they don't do with the Deviants, which I think would have been more interesting. But it's the same kind yeah. of like what changes. But by keep having two that are kind of at the same level, we can see how basically the, the Eternal Society is, is kind of rotten at its core. Uh, and the characters just don't realize it. Yeah, but unfortunately, the narrative never really acknowledges that, no. although that is the story, and that it continues to be frustrating. Yeah, it's because it's uh, Thomas really wanted this to be you know, your traditional superheroic story. You've got your bad guys, the Celestials. You've got your good guys, the Eternals. You've got your other good guys, Thor. You've got th the people Thor is, is tragically forced to fight, the people that not so tragically forced to fight you've got the deviants who are filling much more of that villainous role um but they're also more not anti-heroes but they're more they're still the, the most complicated parts of this and i really like that i'm glad that the deviants are not just stock evil it does suck that their city gets destroyed again i mean i feel like the deviants are there to get tormented by the fates and for us to be like wow glad i don't live in the deviant city yeah yeah pretty much um I guess the other the other two things I, I wanted to ask you about is what did you think of all of these old Thorisms? Oh, the the thou medieval speech stuff. Oh yeah, we have to he over there, and then writing enough as in now. It's I think it's fun. I re I was reading comics uh, just about when the time when Thor comics switched from that style of writing to more like what they are now. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really funny is I feel like old Thor comics were going for this like uh, abstract idea of Shakespeare and Shakespearean mm. and like and like uh, it, it's like a play. Like I said before, playing for the cheap seats. It's mm -hmm. very theatrical. Yeah. And what Thor has become now, I think, is really influenced by the Lord of the Rings movies. Huh. 
where um, they talk with kind of this like weird medieval syntax, but they're still using most of the same words as us. Yeah. And it's not doing this like cartoonish thing where every sentence has to be like stuffed with weird uh, phrases. Yeah. And also gone are the exclamations that, you know, peppered this era of comics. You know, we don't have Thor screaming by Odin's beard as much or his many, many versions of that. And every character has their own few additions. You know, Doctor Strange has by the hoary hosts of Hoggoth. Best one. Best one. Um, I can't really think of any of the others at the moment. But that kind of stuff just isn't in fashion anymore. And of the characters, it still feels like Thor and his crew would still be speaking like that. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not that it violates my uh, the the consistency of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, like, it was like fun to visit this older style of writing. I'm glad we don't still do it. I feel that. I, it was starting to get to me. It was starting to get to me, I'll be honest. It slows down the reading, and that's when I start looking at the pictures more than the words. Yeah. It doesn't help that I... I don't know. I found... Uh, Thomas's constant exposition to be grading whereas I found Jack Kirby's huge blocks of text fun to read even if it was just like inconsequential Uh, you're not really a Star Trek guy Elias right no I am not when Star Trek Discovery launched it it has all these Klingon stuff in it and there's whole scenes of just Klingons talking to other Klingons in Klingon which is a real language Uh uh-huh and it turns out this was a terrible idea because it takes an hour to say anything in Klingon. These scenes would go on and on and on. <laughs> and it was like, it's really cute that you have this gimmick that you can fall back on, but you did not use it well. No. It's taken forever now. You just, uh, you, it's, it's, on every, it's all over everything. <laughs> did you know who half these ancillary characters were? Which ones? Uh, all of the Thor people. It's like, I know Sif. I know the, the Warriors 3... But I didn't know what Carnilla was doing. I didn't know that you know what's up. What's up with Balder and why they're fighting um, this yeah. dragon? And I know Carnilla. I mean, I, I didn't exactly know where she was in the story, but it was easy to jump in. And Balder rules. Uh, Balder is probably one of the best characters in Thor. In my two favorite runs of Thor. Okay. I'm um, two favorite runs is I, I I didn't count the Aaron runs. So maybe three favorite runs. <laughs> Aaron's is so long. I mean, so so much Aaron. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. And Straczynski, I love his his run, and he's got a lot of good Baldur stuff. Oh, yeah. It's been so long since I've read that. We should go back to that sometime. Probably. I have that in hardcover. What about Mimir? What's his deal? Mimir, I don't didn't know from Marvel so much, but I know from mythology. Oh, what what is his deal then? He's an oracle. He um is like a guy who is all wise and all-seeing and all-knowing, but he gets his head chopped off. Oh, right. And then you carry around his head, and he tells you prophecies. Oh, well, here here he's been thrown in a fire, and he is fire, and he enjoys dunking on Odin, and it is so nice. Even if I don't really like Mimir, it's so nice to hear everyone dunk on Odin. Yeah, they've been stuck with this guy for thousands of years. Yeah. So do you want to get... Because I don't think we, we really got into your... Why the concept of the Eternals still doesn't work, and maybe works worse now. Because of the, okay. the introduction of Thor and the Olympians. So this all has to do, actually, for me, with the character in this comics we read called The One Before All. Oh, oh, okay. It all hinges on him. I guess I didn't realize that there was a Celestial that they called The One Before All. Uh, the One Above All. The one, Yeah, excuse me, The One Above All. I wrote it wrong on my notes once, but I got it right the other times. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that all. either. And I was like, all right, that makes sense. The one above all is the thing that Marvel mostly calls it's like supreme deity be, uh, being. Mm-hmm. And um, most of the time when that supreme deity shows up, he looks a little bit like Stanley and Jack Kirby. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. You've seen that. You've seen a, like a Fantastic Four comic or whatever when they've met God. No, I haven't actually. It comes. It shows up every once in a while. But so I. Um, so I feel like just the no prize explanation of why there is an eternal called the one above all and there's also like a supreme god called the one above all in the Marvel cosmos is that they're just like expressions of the same guy, right? Mm-hmm. That um, when the one above all like walks on our plane, he embodies a celestial. Okay. That I, I can kind of get over into that, right? Yeah. According to the Marvel Wiki again, the divine entity, the one above all, was first introduced by Mark Wade in 2004, and that's where the, the he looks like Jack Kirby thing comes from. Oh. And and you can see um, what they're all going for, right? Like, um, 
uh, Wade loves Kirby so much that he's like, well, obviously Kirby is the the mind from which this universe sprang and thus is the uh, god, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I get the symbolism and what he's trying to do there. Um, and But then I found out, no, in the wiki, um, it says... The one above all is not to be confused with the celestial of the same name. It is unknown if the one above all has any relation to other characters like y- or Fulcrum. <laughs> Fulcrum. And it turns out that there is a celestial called the one above all. He's really powerful. But then there's an actual one above all who is the supreme being. And then there's also a being called y- who is the like Judeo-Christian god who shows up in the Bible who is different than actual god. That's the. That's just the the name pronounced right but like is not the same as the one above all which i think is interesting he is not the true god he's not the supreme being that's so weird and obviously doesn't show up that much in marvel although according to the marvel wiki he's mentioned in almost every issue i love it i love i love how you're like you're looking through and you're like oh there there's god there's god again Mentioned again. Well, I, I'm one of those people who likes exploring the boundaries of the universe. I love uh, Al Ewing's Ultimates. Mm-hmm. And um, I like the intentional, mind-boggling cosmos of it all. But then this is just like, uh, this seems messy to me. You got the one above all the celestial, the one above all the god, the Judeo-Christian god. And later, we'll re- when we get to 2009 Eternals, there is another supreme celestial different than the one above all called the Fulcrum. Uh, okay. We'll get there in a few months. We'll get there in a few months, but so, like, we're not only is this one above all kind of not a really a recurring character, but, like, they keep on doing other characters and then specifying that, no, these are all different guys. Why? Why not just make them all expressions of the same same being? So Save yourself really some need, trouble. Yeah, I just really need a story that compellingly retcons all of this because it really makes me feel like these are the ancillary guys who aren't important. They're not going to show up in other comics or affect the story, really. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe Al Ewing will fix it. He would be good at it. Maybe Kieran Gillen will fix it with Eternal stuff. We will see. Fortunately, I think the today's reading, we ended on a strong note for me because then we got up to El Toro, Rojo, and Vampiro. <laughs> and I got so mad when we got up to Vampiro. Why? Where have they been hiding this amazing character from me? Uh, I, um... So I so then I of course I started drawing, I was like where else does Vampiro show up he's great and I found on the Marvel wiki it says Vampiro Gilgamesh and the Delphin brothers are the only Eternals who have appeared in stories published before 2021 that are still only known as their by their aliases oh now that's fun that's kind of fun but it gets really fun where um you look at the name of the 100 Eternals that Kieran Gillen put in the modern comics yeah about 45 of them are new names of characters we don't know yeah didn't he say he made them up to to round it out sure and those are the names of real characters but there's no vampiro listed there so one of those 45 names is vampiro's true identity Mm. and i think that's a fun dangling mystery and i hope somebody uh, closes that loop unless vampiro is one of the excluded ones sure we don't know we don't know what happens to vampiro well i mean if you looked at the the wiki you probably know yeah, and Vampiro shows up in a couple more issues throughout the history of Marvel. But I love—he's the co- most compelling Eternal. He's the one who um, is doing the most interesting stuff with his immortality, which is becoming a pro wrestler. <laughs> and he fights the God of Thunder. So, like, Vampiro is my boy. He is great. I had I had so much fun with that that wrestling issue. It was a nice break from everything else that was going on. Um, yeah. Even if the 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 actual art felt a little. Uh, shaky i i I had i was cool with the art i will say but um the thing that is leaving me the most shaky is um just that the eternals are like set up in the background of the marvel universe and and the celestials more especially Mm -hmm. and um so far we haven't read a comic that's really made that feel like an interesting story choice to me yeah they're just kind of there they're floating around in the background and you're like well what about the uh inhumans they're doing the same thing kind of they're just kind of, kind of hiding yeah. off, hiding off in the distance. And they, I think they even mentioned that here. It's like, how, how did we not know? And someone's like, well, you didn't know about the, the Inhumans. And then Thor's like, shh, don't tell me that. I, yeah. I, and I got a feeling that our, our next reading isn't going to really turn this around because it's the second half of the same, which I'm not bummed about. I, you know, th- these were, these comics are like totally readable to me. They're not disasters and they're 
goofy and fun. They're not like masterpieces and they're not that compelling or memorable, but like, I'm not bummed to be reading more. Yeah, I was expecting more, I guess it to be more coherent, <laughs> not coherent, but um, consistent. You know, but then I remembered just as the Kree Skull- Scroll War was collected as the Kree Scroll War, but it really wasn't. Um, this has that same feeling, considering both Roy Thomas wrote both of them. That makes sense. Um, and I think that that vibe you're describing is Bronze Age uh, soapiness. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll like read Dark Phoenix Saga, which I don't think you've ever read. No, I haven't. And Dark Phoenix Saga is, like, wild with the soapiness. Like, there's an entire issue of Jean Grey having a hallucination that she's, like, a rich lady in the 1700s. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And it's great. Like, I really would love a straight adaptation of Dark Phoenix Saga as a movie with all of these weird asides. I feel like this movie could be bonkers and cool. I think you would need to do a miniseries. I think that would be more fun. I mean, they already did. It was called X-Men the Animated Series in 1992, and it ruled. <sighs> new one a new one come on i'm telling you that's like the, the they adapted issue by issue every episode is an issue of dark phoenix saga and it's fantastic including the 1700s one yeah include they, they do an episode of that wow it's a mastermind is like hypnotizing jean gray and trying to seduce her <laughs> okay it's, it's cool it's weird and cool i believe it it's really committed to the bit that's what you got to do you have to commit to the bit if you're gonna do it that's what i've learned recently yeah uh, and, you know, the Eternal Saga commits to their bit as much as it can. Uh, well, that's my complaint is no, it does not. Oh, do you want to get into that now or do you want to save that for when we read the second half? See if it see if I it mean, continues. We'll talk more about it, but um, it has to do with the uh, just the, the way we're jacking the Celestials into everything, but we're not actually describing what they're doing. We're just like, it's all this telling, not showing. It's all these, mm. oh, the Celestials are the supreme beings. They can kill even the gods. But like, what does any of that mean? Why do I care? Yeah. And we haven't really seen any of it other than when, uh, well, what was his name? Not Vulcan. Um, Icarus' dad. No, who sacrifices himself in annual number seven. Oh my god, I don't ask me to remember. He has, a na- he has a name that's just like Vulcan, which is very annoying. Because I kept thinking they were the same person. They look the same. They've got similar writing. Viraco. Viraco. Jesus, I was never going to remember that. Nope. Ugh, what a name. There's also a Vulcan, apparently. Yes, Vulcan. We met him last time. Yeah. Shows you how well I'm remembering these Eternals, though. Yeah, as the name, as the cast expands and the names get bigger, we'll find out. I mean, well, we met, we met Ereshkigal. The Deviant, who was ve- pretty, that's, that was her character. Pretty. Yeah. Real Roy pretty Thomas in the 70s. Yep. I don't really have anything else to say about the, these issues. I, I'm trying, I'm fishing around. I'm like, what, what, how can we end this? I'm like, well, we're at the, we're at the midway point. Yeah, we're at the midway point. We don't have to, we're, the, we're not wrapped up with the story, so we don't have to quite put a, a bow on it. We'll do that next time. And what are we reading next time? Next time, we are reading Thor Volume 1. Uh, issues 292 through 301, which is the end of the Mighty Thor and the Eternals Celestial Saga, which can be found in the Mighty Thor and the Eternals Celestial Saga trade paperback, or in that Eternals Complete Saga Omnibus if you've got a copy, or I think they divided this up into two different trades when it first came out, um, or when yeah, they first did Hoopla, the trades. On Hoopla, the trades are divided like that. Yeah. I think it might be called the Eternal Saga instead of the Celestial Saga at that point. The names are I think wild. You're right. um, but yeah, you can find it on Hoopla and Marvel Unlimited from your local library in print or comic shop. Um, but those are the issues we're going to be covering. Um, until then, Jaina, where can they find you on the larger interwebs? Folks can find me writing for multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website where I mostly write about X Men and sometimes some other stuff. And also sometimes on comicbookherald.com, where I sometimes review comic book trade paperbacks. You can also find me tweeting at rambling underscore moose. And Elias, how about you? Where can folks find you on the larger interwebs? They can find me on Twitter at Quetzal-ish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Behold the name bestowed upon me upon Mount uh, Asgard, upon the Rainbow Bridge. Excelsior. <laughs> <laughs>